Well, good morning. Ready to dive in a little bit? Yeah? Good? Thumbs up? Everybody? Let's see them? I like that. Okay, good. You're with me. We're ready to rock. So my name's Jeff. I'm from Arizona. Uh, God sends people to Arizona when they've done something terribly wrong. So I, I live in Arizona, but we come out to California probably, I don't know, six to or as often as I can. Yeah. So we try to come to the beach as often as we can because it's amazing out here. And we never, every time we leave here, it's like, why do we live in Arizona? Like this weather is like what heaven's going to be like all the time. So anyway, super excited to be with you. We're going to teach the next three weeks on this idea of um, the whole narrative of the scripture tends to be this moment in which God meets people in places, in, in specific places. And, and so we're going to walk through these uh, stories in which Jesus has met people on roads. And for most of us, uh, when we came to faith, it was in a moment in our story, in our moving towards something or away from something, that Jesus met us and transformed our lives. And many of you can say that's your story that Jesus has met you and come to you in a moment in your life. And for some of you, you're still working through that. I would tell you that you should follow Jesus. You should come to know him. It's been a really remarkable, horrible, difficult, beautiful, amazing thing that I've been through. And all those words, I know it feels paradoxical, but that can really define a relationship with God in which it sometimes doesn't go the way you want it to go. And sometimes it doesn't look the way you want to, but I feel loved. I really, truly do feel loved by the Father through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's met us in a place in our life. Um, when um, my wife and I got first married, I knew some things about her, you know, some things that I, I you know, you, you, there's always challenges in marriage. Uh, mine happens to be uh, that my wife is just horrible at directions, like really bad like, she should probably get counseling just for that. But, like, really, so, like, the first 10 years of our life, I would draw these maps for her because I love my wife. I want to serve her, okay? And so I would draw these maps, these ornate maps with, like, landmarks and, like, smiley faces and don't forget this and, you know, things like that. And I thought, okay, I've done my part. I've served my wife. Now she can get safely to her destination. Hallelujah. Amen. The problem is, is that apparently I didn't make it clear enough because at some point she would call me loathing on the cell phone about how she's lost. And I'm like, how are you lost? How are you lost? I, I mean, I'm, I put red Sharpie on the map so you wouldn't get off. But she inevitably would go like, what I saw, I went this way. Like, I circled that and put a smiley face and like, I love you on that map. How did you go left there? But that ended up becoming the bane of our marriage. And then she would get frustrated, like, well, tell me where to go now. I don't know where you are. I don't know where you are because had you followed the, let's track now, if had you followed the map that I have given to you, you would have arrived at said location. But now you're in the middle of somewhere I don't know and I somehow have to guess where you're at. So what ended up happening would be find some road signs. So she's finding a road sign and, and she found it. And so I would say, okay, so what you need to do in order to get back on the map is to do this. And then she would argue with me. What are you doing to me right now? Why are you doing this to me? But I think this is exactly what we do with God. God has laid out for us this plan. 
He's, he sent his son to die on a cross, rose from the grave, has set us and commissioned us as the people of God, and yet we're constantly in conflict with his plan, questioning the divine. Why this and why that? Why is it going here? Why is it going? And I think for a lot of us, it's why we're stuck. It's why we're just stuck and stymied. Maybe you feel that way. Like you came to know Jesus and it was this amazing moment and then at some point in that journey, it got hard. And you're like, well, wait a God, that's not how it was supposed to go. But now you're kind of stuck. And you're like, what do I do now? And I think in this story, in this place in which Jesus meets these two guys on a road, my hope is that the scriptures will become really real to you this morning that you would feel the weight because it's real in most of your lives and many of your lives about this tension that goes on. You see, all that God has revealed is right before us. But we won't be proactive in his narrative because we're too busy trying to create our own. He has a plan for you and he loves you and we are in conflict at that occasionally or maybe all the time. It's part of the reason why you don't feel that free to receive the love of the Father and to move in it. Can I pray? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you that you are God and we are not. We come to your word humbly. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, show us who you are. I pray that you would bring conviction in our lives so that we can move forward in this sanctification process of growing to be like you. We love you and we thank you. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, Luke 24 is where we're gonna go. If you have your Bibles, Luke 24. We got a lot of reading to do and that's a good thing. And so we're gonna dive right in. Sound good? Say yes. Very good. All right, church. Now the same day, two of them were going to the village called Emmaus. Uh, About seven miles from Jerusalem, they were talking to each other about everything that had happened and as they talked, um, discussed the things with each other. Jesus himself had, had come up and walked along with them, but they, kept, they were kept from recognizing him. They, uh, he asked them, uh, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood with their faces downcast. One of them, uh, Cleopas, asked him, are, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know the things that have happened here for days? Well, what things, asked, he asked about Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He, he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. And the chief priests and the rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death. And, and then they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one that was going to redeem Israel. And, and what is more, in the, in the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our, men, our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early in the morning, but they did not find his body. They came and told us that they had seen visions of angels and who had seen him alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it was just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not Christ have to suffer these things to enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and the prophets, he explained to them what was uh, what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. 
As they approached the village to which they were to go, or which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening, the day is almost over. So, they went to, so he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began uh, to give it to them. Their eyes were opened. They recognized him. And he disappeared in their sight. They, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 who were with them as, uh, assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord is risen and appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus had recognized them when they had broke bread. This is the word of God and all God's people said, amen. So here in this story, Easter Sunday, you have two men walking slowly, heads down, disappointed, discussing, disillusioned, frustrated, angry, overwhelmed. Jesus didn't turn out the way they wanted. They had hoped that he would be this Messiah that was gonna come and rescue Israel and reestablish them as the people of God, but he died. And they're frustrated. Overwhelmed. Scared. Here they've invested three and a half years of their lives following him, hoping and believing that he was who they wanted him to be, and he died. And they buried him. You ever felt that way? Like I get this moment. Like I get that feeling. I understand this. Four years ago I sat at the edge of my hospital bed, of a hospital bed of my eight-year-old son and they said he's got leukemia. Like I get this. I get this moment. Like I'd done all the right stuff. I grew up in a in a Christian home, I went to Christian school. I did everything Christian you could possibly do. I was in pro-life rallies, I went on mission trips, I went to juvenile detention halls, I went, did prison ministry with my dad. I went to Moody Bible Institute, I became a pastor. I tracked really well on the Christian utilitarian ladder to where I believed God was calling me to do. And now he's gonna touch my son? How dare you? I've done everything you've asked me to do, and now this? You ever felt that way? You ever felt that way, like Jesus just didn't turn out what I thought, the way I thought he was gonna turn out? Like this Christian life, like the return on investment isn't what I imagined, and so I'm stuck, and I'm frustrated, and I'm angry? Like, I get this. I'm not, I'm not judging these guys. I completely understand this moment. I think some of you do, too. I think you understand that moment of being frustrated. But here's the interesting thing that happens. In the middle of that moment, verse 15 has Jesus coming to them in that moment. He approaches them in the middle of their delusionment, in the middle of their frustration, in the middle of their anger, in the middle of their why did this not, this did not turn out the way we wanted. The incarnate Jesus Christ who just died on the cross and rose from the grave appears to them. I think that's crazy. Those two guys, if it was me, thank goodness it's not, I'd have been like, you're off the team, pals. 
I'm not, I'm showing up to the people who are like, let's go charge, right? No. He shows up to the people who are in the middle of this. I don't even know if he's real. And they don't even see him. They don't even recognize him. Now, there's scholars who have unpacked this and there's two different ways to kind of look at it. Either God closed their eyes so they couldn't see or because of, the, because of his incarnated body that they, he, they didn't recognize him either way. They didn't see him. They didn't even notice him because they're in a mode of going, he isn't real and he wasn't who we thought he was gonna be. A few years back, I was at a restaurant with a, a good buddy of mine. Our families got together and we were pastors at a church um, and uh, this guy came up to, to my, my buddy and I, our families, and he goes, wow, Pastor Aaron. Oh my gosh, hey, you were a pastor at Cornerstone. And Aaron's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was too. And, and he was like, oh my gosh, we, we, we think you're great. No, 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 no. I'd love for you to talk to my wife. And he took my buddy away and went and talked to this guy's wife. And I was sitting there going like, what gives? I was on the stage too, you know? So he comes back with my buddy and he, and he sits with him and he's talking with him and, and he goes, wait, uh, wait, are you, are you Pastor Jeff? And I'm, yes, it is me. <laughs> no, no, yeah. Are you, are, you, are you Pastor Jeff? And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and he was like, I didn't even recognize you. I was like, I know, I got a haircut. And he's like, no, you got fat. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? You got fat. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. I repented, don't worry. But he didn't even recognize me. You know, I was a teaching pastor and I did all, he didn't even recognize me. But here's the deal about all of us. Like, we get so wrapped up into our own lives, our own problems, that we don't even see that Jesus is in our midst. In the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that tension and, and disillusionment and pain and questions, Jesus is there with you. The Holy Spirit is closer to you than your own heartbeat. But we don't recognize him because it didn't work out the way we wanted it to. And it didn't look the way we wanted And stuff, life went south. And I'm stuck and I'm sad and I'm overwhelmed and I don't know what to do. And so I miss Jesus completely. But the interesting thing even in this moment is that Jesus continues to draw closer to them by drawing out a conversation. And so Jesus says, oh, there was something that happened in Jerusalem? Please inform me what happened in Jerusalem. Can you see the irony in this passage? Jesus is like, there was a guy who died on a cross? Please fill me in. I'd love to hear the story from your perspective, <laughs> you know? So he says, what things? Like, what, what things happened? And they're like, minds are blown. They're like, are you the only guy that doesn't know what's happened? And then they start talking about Jesus in the past tense. Oh, he was this guy, and he, we, he, he was this prophet, and we had hoped that he was gonna save all of Israel and restore them to be the people of God, but <sighs> he died, and that's the end of that, and that's why we're walking back, and that's the end of that. You know, doubt is a state of suspense in which the mind is not, when, is the mind has not made up either to believe or reject. This is most of what you see with the disciples while they're following Jesus. They, they believe in moments and then they doubt in other moments and it's this tension in which they, they're not sure if he's the Messiah or not. He says some kind of crazy stuff about tearing down the temple and rebuilding it and so they're not really sure but these guys are in a place of unbelief and unbelief is a definite attitude of refusal. Definitive attitude of refusal. It's, it's done. And they move on. And they're sad. And they're overwhelmed. You see, they had accepted Jesus as a prophet. A good man. Good teacher. Maybe some of you have too. 
but they had not fully come to embrace him as Messiah, Lord, King of Kings, above all else. They had not come to recognize him and accept him. They had this version of what they believed the Messiah would look like, and it wasn't Jesus. See, I work with millennials, young professionals. Young professionals, single young professionals have this idea of the one, which is like this mystical unicorn that lives in a universe far, far away. And here's how the story goes. One day they're sitting in a restaurant waiting for the one. And this one, of course, is athletic and beautiful, reads books, but still can talk and introverted, but still extroverted, (laughs) is both frugal and spendy. (laughs) And one day they're sitting in the restaurant and all of a sudden the doors come open and Shekinah Glory just goes, ah, like this. And the one walks in and air is blowing behind the one. Right? And all of a sudden they lock eyes and they're like, oh my gosh, you're the one. And they run to each other and they embrace and they run off and they live happily ever after. They have two and a half kids and a white picket fence and a little dog named Toto. And here's the crazy thing. They actually believe this. I'm not even joking. They're waiting for the mystical one to show up in the door and solve all their problems. Oh God, bring the one. This is Israel with the Messiah. They had read the Old Testament in a way in which the Messiah was this caricature of what they wanted. That he had him riding in a pony with a big sword going, I'm going to destroy all. And except the problem is, is that Jesus comes in a barn. He lives as a carpenter because his father passed away. He's taking care of his mom. He calls and hangs out with a bunch of fishermen and tax collector. And then he dies. That's not my Messiah. That's not the one we've been waiting for. And so you can understand why these guys are a little weighty and why they don't see Jesus. You see, even you even have, like John the Baptist is the precursor to the Messiah. He's the one that is announcing that the Messiah is coming. And you have this moment in the scriptures in which he's there and then all of a sudden he's in prison. And they're about to cut off his head. And he sends his followers out and they go to Jesus and say, hey, John wants to know, are you the one we've been waiting for? Because John's sitting in prison and he's kind of confused why his head's gonna come off because that's not how it was supposed to go. Like he was supposed to be hand in hand with the Messiah taking over and destroying the Romans and kicking them out and reestablishing the people, but he's gonna die now. And that wasn't a part of the plan. And so are you the one that we've been waiting for? Jesus sends back a very confusing message about serving people and taking care of them and it's like nothing what John wanted to hear. And I think we get that, right? I think we can understand that and sympathize with the fact that Sometimes it doesn't look the way you want it to, most times. And so they sit there on this road, disillusioned, because Jesus didn't turn out the way they thought. So here's a question for you. Do you agree that church should be a place where we should be honest? Do you agree with that? Say yes if you agree with that. I think church is the easiest place to fake it. You just go through the motions, pretend, do your thing, and kind of show up and everyone goes, well, they must be a good Christian. Right, can we, but can we be just honest for a moment here in church? Can we do that? Okay, this is what I would love. If you've ever felt a moment in which you felt like Jesus didn't turn out the way you thought, meaning there was a situation in your life where somebody got sick or maybe divorced or maybe finances or a job or whatever that is, just stand up where you were just frustrated. Let's just be honest for a moment. 
And if you can't stand up, just raise your hand so we can see. Thank you for your honesty. You see the community of God's people who stand in this place, united with one thing. Jesus doesn't always turn out the way we want him to, and it's frustrating. Correct or incorrect? Correct. So this is what I want you to do. For the next minute, just turn to people around you and tell them your brief story of that. Tell them that moment. Maybe it's that job loss. Just let's be honest with each other just for a moment and tell that story if you feel comfortable to do that. Sound good? You have one minute. Go do it. The extroverts are having a heyday. Introverts are like, nope. (laughs) Give you about 30 more seconds. Okay, 10 seconds. All right, thank you very much. Give yourselves a round of applause. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So if you'll be honest one more time, yell out. You know, yell out some of those things. Just yell them out loud, like one at a time. Yell, yell out some of those things. Go ahead. What? Marriage. Marriage. That guy. Thank you. All right, come on. What? Cancer. Yeah, what? Children. (laughs) I almost heard an audible amen. Okay. Come on. What else? Work. What? Money. Abandonment. Guys, we're in this together. Girls, we're in this together. We're all frustrated in this moment because we're human. We have expectations. We come to the throne of God and we accept his grace and his mercy. But a lot of us, it's like, but why is this happening now? This is not how it was supposed to go. And in that moment, Jesus meets you. And he has a conversation with you. When Jesus doesn't become who we want him to be, we get disappointed and we doubt the plan of God. True or not true? True. Here's Jesus' transition to this. He calls them fools. He says, you fools. And in the Greek, that word denotes weakness or dullness. You see, these men had acknowledged parts about the Messianic prophecy. They had taken pieces of the prophecies that they liked about the Messiah. And so they had come in their minds, created a version of the Messiah that they wanted But they completely rejected passages like Isaiah 53.10 when it said it would please God to crush Jesus. Said, oh, no, 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 the Messiah cannot be crushed. But they would ignore those parts. And Jesus is saying, you fools. You fools. You only want bits and pieces of it. You don't want all of it. And we do this as Christians all the time. We like to compartmentalize Jesus. Right? We say, God, I love the part about blessing. Hashtag blessed. 
Blessedy, bless, 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 right? Hashtag blessy, bless, bless, right? We like the blessings, bless, but we're like, hey, no suffering, okay? Because I don't know how to hashtag that, right? With a hashtag suffering, everyone be like, boy, what a downer, right? No, but hashtag bless sounds really great, doesn't it? No, I don't know. We don't know what to do with that. Right? And, and so we say, no, 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 no. I'll take the blessing part, but not the suffering part. I'll, I'll take the part in which I say, Jesus, you can love me, um, and I'm going to do a bunch of stuff, right, to prove to you. But I, I can't receive your free grace that you give me. I can't, I can't do that. Jesus, Jesus, check this out. I'm going to give you 10%. That's right, 10. 10. Here's the deal about that, though. I'm, uh, I'm going to expect uh, 30% in return, though. <laughs> you know, I saw what you did with the bread and the fish, and I'm thinking that might be good here, too. <laughs> right? Let's be honest. Let's uh, get a little bit of that multiplication going here, right? Okay? But here you go. Here's the tent. Oh, wait. Whoa, 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 whoa. I'm supposed to sacrificially be generous? <laughs> whoa. I work really hard for my money, Right? If you can't come to rest in the fullness of Jesus, as John 1 says, then you are really not accepting him at all. You don't get to just pick and choose the stuff you want. You either accept Jesus completely or you reject him completely. That's a hard one, isn't it? That's a hard one. I admit, it's a hard one. And so in verse 27, Jesus starts teaching them. He starts teaching the whole of the scriptures, right? And he starts unpacking for them. Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus teaching you the Bible? And Wilmington kind of says it, he thinks it would go something like this. He says, I am the seed of the woman in Genesis. I am the Passover lamb of Exodus. I am the anointed high of Leviticus. I am the brazen serpent of Numbers. I am the great rock of Deuteronomy. I am the captain of the Lord host of Joshua. I am the messenger of the Lord of Judges. I am the kinsman redeemer of Ruth. I am the great judge in 1 Samuel. I am the seed of David of 2 Samuel. I am the Lord God of Israel of 1 Kings. I am the God of the cherubim of 2 Kings. I am the God of our salvation of 1 Chronicles. I am the God of our fathers, the second chronicles. I am the Lord of heaven and earth of Ezra. I am the covenant keeping guy of Nehemiah. I am the God of providence of Esther. I am the returning redeemer of Job. I am the good shepherd of the Psalms. I'm the wisdom of God in Proverbs. I'm the above the son of Ecclesiastes. I'm the altogether lovely of song of Solomon. I'm the virgin born Emmanuel of Isaiah. I'm the branch of righteousness of Jeremiah. I am the compassionate one of Lamentations. I'm the Lord is there of Ezekiel. I am the stone cut without hands of Daniel. I am the king of rescue of Hosea. I am the God of the battle of Joel. I'm the plumb line of Amos. I'm the destroyer of the proud of Obadiah. I'm the risen prophet of Jonah. I'm the Bethlehem born of Micah. I'm the bringer of good tidings of Nahum. I'm the anointed of Habakkuk. I'm the king of Israel of Zephaniah. I'm the desire of the nations of Haggai. I'm the branch of Zechariah. I'm the son of righteousness of Malachi. What Jesus is trying to teach them, it was always about me. It was always about Jesus, always. Every single piece of truth that you have read in the the scriptures proclaim his name and who he is. The wholeness of the scriptures say it's about Jesus and Jesus only. It's about his death and his resurrection. And these guys are missing it and Jesus is unpacking it for him. 
and then for them and for you and for me, that it's always been about Jesus. It's never been about what you wanted him to be. Verse 28 through 31, there's an invitation. Jesus is kind of moving on and they're like, invite him to dinner. And it's interesting because Jesus is a gentleman. Like Revelation 3.20 says that he stands at the door and what does he do? Knocks. He's not like a CIA agent, like, we're coming in, right? No, he, he doesn't do that. No, he stands at the door and knocks. He waits patiently for the invitation. And they invite him. And the interesting thing is he takes the position of the master in the house, even though he's the guest. He takes the bread and he blesses it and he breaks the bread, the body. And their eyes are open. They saw the risen Messiah. They saw it through the understanding of the scriptures. They, they saw it through the reprimand. They saw it through the conversation, through the community, through the opening of their lives to the truth that had always been present. And what happens right after that? Jesus leaves. What is their reaction to this moment? Well, remember, they walked to Emmaus. There's this moment of repentance, and they turn, and they run to Jerusalem. They run to the Jerusalem to tell the community he's risen. Isn't that what happens in our life when we truly come to understand who God is? Is that we go tell people about it, we go live it out? Maybe it's confusing, maybe it's hard, but when you've experienced the love and the grace of our Savior, you run. You tell people, you live it out, you explain it. And so your individual reality has communal responsibilities. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's not just for you, it's for the community of people, that the world will know the love of Christ. So when you've met this Jesus and when you've come to rest in his grace and his love for your life, you run. Isn't that what we're called to, church? Aren't we called to run? Aren't we called to live this thing out in the midst of suffering, in the midst of good times, in the midst of ambiguity? And we're called to run because we know who he is and we know where we're going and we know what he is up to in this world. He's redeeming it all and he's using the people of God to be the people that says you are a light. You are a nation on a hill for the world to see through the way that you love and proclaim the goodness of my love and my grace in your life, Amen. That's what we're called to be. That's what these men experienced. But it was because Jesus met them in their doubt, walked with them and talked with them, and said, this was never about you. It's always been about me. It's about you joining in what I'm doing in the world. You won't live like this until you come to grip with the fact that Jesus not only died for your sins, but also raised from the grave. You only hit the streets proclaiming this good news. We call the gospel when the full weight has consumed your life. And for a lot of you, that's releasing the control. Releasing that and saying, it's about you. Sitting there in that room with Cooper, my eight-year-old son, watching them pump poison into his body. I mean, a very vivid a very vivid memory for us is there was a nurse that was pregnant and she said, I'm sorry, I can't be in the room when they're giving the chemotherapy. It could kill my baby. 
so I have to leave. And here they're pumping that stuff through my son's body. I'm angry, I'm upset, I'm frustrated. There's tears everywhere, I'm exhausted. I sit on the edge of his bed and I look at him. He said, Dad, I think God's allowed me to have cancer to show the world that he's a healer, that he's a healer. Jesus met me in that moment to an eight-year-old boy who was suffering because he believed that God was good. That he believed that God was good in the midst of pain and suffering. He had a childlike faith in which he taught his mother and I to be still and to know that he is God. And he's doing it in each and every one of your lives. The question is, what will you do now that Jesus has met you? How will you live different? What will you impact Do you believe this church has been strategically put in this place for something bigger than a church service? Do you believe that, yes or no? We gotta run. That's why we're here. That's why you're here in this church, in this moment, in your life, is to go run and change this community. But it starts with you. It starts with you coming to embrace the ambiguity of what it means to follow this Jesus. Because he's going to call you to places that you never thought you would go. One of my favorite passages in all of scripture is Ecclesiastes 7.13. It says this. Watch the way that God works and fall in line. Don't fight the ways of God. For who can make straight what God has made crooked? Stop trying to look at Jesus as a linear answer to all your problems. Enjoy the ride on the road he's called you. And watch the impact you have in people's lives. How could you be joyful in the midst of that? And it's authentic joy. How could you be loving in the midst of that? A lady came to me after the service. She said, yeah, what if your son died? Like, how would you preach that now? How would you preach that message? And I would say as believers, the great hope as believers is this, that even in death we win. Even in death we win. In suffering we win because of what Jesus did. Our end is not this place, but in this place we will serve him as we head to eternity. So even in death, and some of you have lost, and I can't imagine that pain, but even in death we win because Jesus is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. We win no matter what happens because he is in control. And I know that runs against every bit of human logic that you have lodged in your head, but you know in your heart that we need a God like that. We need something bigger than that. So live in that, live in that. Be the children he's called you to be for the glory of God, amen? Amen, let's pray. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your patience with us as we wrestle through what it means to follow you. You are above us, but you are near us. You are a great tower of strength. You comfort us. You are a good shepherd. You are Abba Father. You are Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah, Jira, Jehovah Rapha. You are all those things to us. You are I am, that I am in our lives. But you know 
You say in Hebrews that you sympathize with our humanity, and I take great hope in that. I do, I take great joy in the fact that you don't condemn me, but you free me, and you understand that it's hard to be a human and live in this world in the midst of ambiguity and pain and all those things, but you free us to live in your son. You free us to live in his light and his grace and his joy. And you don't say, I just want a relationship with you. You say, I want to abide in you. And you say, abide in me. I just, I can't comprehend that. It's so beautiful and I don't deserve it. We don't deserve it and yet you give it to us freely. So we say thank you and that's all we can say is thank you and we're gonna do our best to live it out. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all God's people said, amen. Thank you.